This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On Media Watch this week, we ask Does documentary photography die here if the publications which print it do? And if so, what do we lose? I honestly get worried about what we're going to have to look back on in 50 years and 100 years when we want to see how we lived. And we want to see it in a, in a, by professionals who dedicated themselves to portraying that. Also this week we look at how on-demand documentaries are in-demand online after lockdown and often available for free. But first, journalists covering the US protests have copped it from the cops there and some of the protesters as well in this week's free-for-all in the land of the free. Many blame Trump for all that, but are there other factors at play too? Rubber bullets were being fired. I myself was hit by a rubber bullet in my chest and the back of my leg. Incredibly painful things they are. And I saw one girl that was hit by a rubber bullet in her eye. She was bleeding profusely. There was tear gas canisters being thrown to try and disperse the crowds. That was Sally Ahan from Turkish broadcaster TRT World on TVNZ1 News last Monday, one of many journalists injured in several cities across the US this week while reporting from this week's demonstrations. And some of them were caught in the crossfire, but many were targeted by either militarised police officers or, in some cases, actual military police. They've been pepper-sprayed, shot by rubber bullets, pushed and punched, and they've also faced arrest and detention, even when it was quite clear who they were why they were there, and that they were just doing their jobs. Last weekend, for example, CNN reporter Omar Jimenez and his crew were taken into police custody during a live broadcast. Viewers watched as they were cuffed and led away over a five-minute period in which they followed all the instructions of police officers who showed no interest in their credentials. Our CNN producer is being... I'm probably going to be taken in a minute. Our CNN camera crew and our producer are being arrested right now on live television in handcuffs. I've never seen anything like this. Why, guys, why, what is, Allison. Why are, why are you arresting us? In Minneapolis, which was ground zero for the protests, freelance journalist Linda Tarado was struck in the left eye by a rubber bullet fired by police on Sunday. She had to be helped to the hospital by strangers in the crowd and has now been told that she's lost vision permanently in that eye. She told the BBC she now has a difficult recovery ahead and a big bill. They don't have health insurance and the bills for this might total up to a quarter million dollars. Um, so there's that pressure. Um, but, but otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm going to continue to do my job. Um, we'll see, you know, how much photography I can do, but I'm, it's unfortunate and I'm not going to say I'm happy about it. But um, if, if somebody thought they were going to stop me telling stories and, and doing my job by putting my eye out, they, uh, they're going to have to try harder. It turns out that Linda Tarado's stoicism and apparent optimism is partly explained by adversity that she's faced earlier in her career in journalism. And you can read all about that on the webpage for this week's Midweek Media Watch on the RNZ website or the Media Watch section of the RNZ app. But while Linda and many other reporters have copped it from the US cops this week, some reporters were also roughed up by protesters. In Atlanta, the headquarters of CNN, one of Trump's top media targets incidentally, was attacked last weekend by several dozen people, one of whom threw a flash grenade into the building's lobby, even as armed police stood guard there. In an eye-opening rundown of attacks on the media this past week, online outlet Vox pointed out that this is actually nothing new during protests of a race in the US. Journalists were targeted by police in the Ferguson, Missouri protests back in 2015 in what Vox called a pattern of violence and arrests which continued into this weekend's protests. And it said that pattern stretches all the way back to the civil rights era of the 1960s.
but the US-based Press Freedom Tracker, which has kept the running total of known press freedom violations this past week, says assaults on media staff by police outnumber those by protesters by about five to one. And when it's foreign reporters getting the treatment, it's an especially bad look for the US around the world. Stefan Simons, a reporter from Germany's international news broadcaster Deutsche Welle, was shot by projectiles by police in Minneapolis while preparing to go on air. Stefan, we're shooting at you. We're press! This is press, guys! We're media! Stop shooting at us! We're in the middle of a live shot! Stay by the car! Okay. You're going to get me! Please! We're doing a job! And this is the Senate, Senate press accreditation, so come on. We're not doing anything. Oh, you're going to get arrested. Hey, let's go oh, I'm not going to get arrested. And Germany's foreign minister, Heiko Maas, wasn't happy. We will contact U.S. authorities to find out more about the circumstances. We remain firmly committed. Journalists must be able to carry out their task, which is independent coverage of events, without endangering their safety. Democratic states, under the rule of law, have to meet the highest standards when it comes to protecting freedom of the press. Meanwhile, in Australia, Channel 7 viewers saw camera operator Tim Myers, who's covered war zones around the world, punched and hit with a riot shield outside the White House, live on breakfast TV, along with reporter Amelia Brace. And along with the Channel 7 studio team, Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison was alarmed by what he saw. International press freedom groups have joined US ones in their condemnations. The International Federation of Journalists, for example, has accused US authorities of crude censorship and a use of excessive force in an attempt to stop journalists scrutinising police responses to the protest movement. And in another statement, the US-based Committee to Protect Journalists said authorities in cities across the US need to instruct their police not to target journalists and to ensure they can report safely on the protests without fear of injury or retaliation. Now, in some places in the states, they did do that. Florida's Miami-Dade County, for example, included the media in its list of curfew exemptions and the emergency orders and publicised that on social media. When local reporter Joel Franco was arrested, he was released after a few hours and the state's attorney general put out a statement acknowledging the mistake and dismissing the charge in full. Not surprisingly, his detention was turned into a story for his local viewers by his colleagues and news media have been pretty effective this past week in bringing instances of mistreatment of the media to light. But given the scale and the scope of the disturbances, were media really extensively targeted or were some journalists just in the wrong place at the wrong time in the streets at the protests? I asked Dr Courtney Radge, the advocacy director for the Washington-based Committee to Protect Journalists. Uh, no, I don't think that's accurate. I think certainly these protests are on a massive scale, which we haven't seen since the civil rights era. And as a result, of course, we expect to see journalists around the world covering these protests. We know that protests are typically you know, challenging and, and potentially dangerous times for journalists because they can get caught up in the violence. And sometimes they've been targeted by protesters who you know, want to control the narrative. But what is unique about this and what really stands out and is so deeply concerning is how many cases of journalists have been targeted by police and by law enforcement, including after they clearly identified themselves as journalists, and yet it did not seem to make a difference. That is unprecedented.
And just looking at those figures, Courtney, on that Press Freedom Tracker, the the latest as we speak, 279 Press Freedom incidents, as they call it, 45-plus uh, journalists arrested. But the interesting figure here, 180 assaults, and they're saying 149 by police. I think that we've seen enough examples on live broadcast television, not to mention the numerous you know, video cams and, and social media recordings of police targeting journalists. For example, the CNN reporter on Friday who was arrested. So I don't think that it's accurate to say that they're just getting caught up. An Australian journalist was beaten with a shield on live television while she was broadcasting. You know, we saw German uh, journalist Stefan get targeted by police, despite the fact that he was saying, I'm media, I'm media, I'm a journalist. It indicates that police do not seem to care that these people are journalists. Well, those two incidents that you mentioned there, the Australian Channel 7 Q and Stefan Simons from Germany, they've both had a response from senior politicians, the German foreign minister, likewise even the Australian prime minister. Do you think this will actually get a response? We don't know yet. My concern is that President Trump has very little regard for press freedom and for the rights of journalists. So I think it is important that these uh, other countries have written to the president as they would in other cases, in, you know, as they have done in cases of uh, assaults against journalists in Egypt or the crackdown on journalists in Turkey. What is shocking is that this has to happen in the United States. So we need to see leadership from mayors, from police chiefs, from governors to come out forcefully and condemn these attacks to launch investigations to find out um, why these attacks occurred and then to hold those account- those who were responsible accountable. Uh, in Florida, one journalist was arrested and then released with the state attorney making it very clear she was dismissing the charge and she said in her statement, working journalists have First Amendment rights, as she put it, uh, and there was no case for this guy, Joel Franco, to be arrested in the first place and no case at all for detaining him once that had happened. Those First Amendment rights must be applicable nationwide. All of the you know, local laws and regulations are done at a local level, and so there isn't a you know, one-size-fits-all approach to curfews or you know, which journalists are, whether journalists are allowed to be out reporting or not. So in some cases, we've seen that there have been explicit announcements about journalists being exempt from curfews. In other cases, this has not been clearly communicated. And I think regardless, this does not always translate down to the you know police officer or law enforcement official on the front lines. And I think that's why we need to see uh, condemnation of these attacks at all levels, including from the highest level. We need to see this from the president because that would set the tone. These attacks on just uh, on journalists and the targeting was unjustified. But is it actually illegal? And could we now see uh, individual journalists and news organisations now trying to sue uh, the police and other um, organisations that targeted them? Yes, yes. It is illegal to attack journalists. It is illegal to target them, especially after they have identified themselves as journalists. We have signed on to a letter with the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and many other organizations to the Minnesota Police Department where they have laid out the specific legal justifications and defenses uh, that protect the rights of journalists to report on the police, to report on civil unrest, and to seek redress. 
And I do believe that we will see uh, news organizations suing. We definitely intend to follow up with the police departments and local authorities. This is going to be a giant headache for these local authorities because this is not acceptable in an American democracy. The news organizations and media support groups are certainly not going to sit by and let this go uh, you know, unprosecuted. Right now, Courtney, our media aren't in the greatest shape. They've been hit by COVID and all sorts of other things, and it's not a very profitable uh, venture. So we're relying entirely on reports from uh, mainly US broadcasters of what we see. Do you think it matters and that we should care here in New Zealand that our own correspondents aren't there to witness events for themselves in the US? Having an international perspective on that is really important because it adds a different dimension. You know, looking at the United States as you would any other country versus, you know, the American perspective, which is often to say, oh, you know, we're a city on a hill where, you know, this somehow we have this American exceptionalism and we have the First Amendment. Well, you know, we have seen that in the past several days, the First Amendment has largely been rhetorical and it has not protected journalists from, you know, from these attacks, which we also have to remember is happening within the context of a global health pandemic. Great. Thank you very much, Courtney. And just just finally, though, I mean, you're working and living in Washington. Disturbances presumably going on not too far from where you live and work. Yeah, it, it is just shocking to see military tanks coming down my street, to hear helicopters overhead circling, uh, to watch my social media feed filled with colleagues and, and unknown journalists alike um, talking about what they're facing. And it really reminds me of what I saw in Egypt. Uh, I worked as a journalist um, throughout the Middle East. And, you know, in, in, during the Arab Spring in Egypt, we saw police using animals, horses and camels to run over protesters. We saw the same things um, here. We, we, you know, the, the, the fact that we have troops out on the streets with no insignia, no names. We cannot hold them accountable. We don't even know who they report to. I, the, the scenes I'm seeing in my hometown here are really reminiscent of what I've seen in dictatorial and authoritarian regimes around the world. The photo of the masses of troops stationed on the Lincoln Memorial was shocking. I just can't believe that we are having to do the same type of advocacy and, and use the same type of terminology that we use to protect um, independent journalists who are trying to work in some of the most repressive environments around the world, that we have to recommend to journalists that they don black jackets and goggles and prepare for vehicular jamming and, you know, all of these tactics that are more familiar when you are reporting in a war zone. Yeah, you have written extensively about and in detail about what happened in Egypt, the so-called Arab Spring, and also uh, the emergence and the importance of digital networks in that. And just the other day, there was a tweet from an American journalist, I think just in jest, but saying, hey, how come no one's calling this the American Spring? And uh, I, guess, I guess it's just a joke. But I wonder, do you think this could be an event we look back on in, in media history and years to come and think about how they report? I think that this experience will illustrate the vital need for media organizations, freelancers, citizen journalists, all journalists to be thinking about safety whenever they go out and report. I also hope that the legacy of this will be reform in terms of the militarization and aggressive tactics of the police being reformed to ensure that they are trained on how 
to enable journalists to work safely and without fear of injury, and that they understand and, and respect the role of journalists and how to work with them in situations of civil unrest. Now, right now, that's a hope, but we are going to work uh, with the local departments on making this happen. Dr. Courtney Ridge, the Advocacy Director for the Washington-based Committee to Protect Journalists. One of the most commented on comment pieces published this past week about the chaos in the US was one in the New York Times opinion section under the provocative headline, Send in the Troops. The author was Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas and a close ally of President Trump. One thing above all else will restore order to our streets, he wrote, an overwhelming show of force to disperse, detain and ultimately deter lawbreakers. The riots, he said, were a carnival for the thrill-seeking rich and an orgy of violence orchestrated by cadres of left-wing radicals. On CNN later, former General Wesley Clark, who commanded US and Allied troops in the Kosovo conflict in 1999, said that Senator Cotton was wrong, but the paper was in the clear. What Tom Cotton is proposing is way out of line with the situation. It totally uh, misunderstands the American political system, our heritage, and the role of the armed forces. I was very sorry to see him say that. Uh, But I think it's fine that the New York Times published it because let's get it out there. Let's talk about it and let's understand why that view is so misplaced at this point. Now, predictably, there was a backlash from those who didn't think that was fit for the paper to publish. But notably, it began in the New York Times' own newsrooms. More than 800 staff members signed a letter of protest to editors and New York Times executives. The letter argued that Senator Cotton's essay was not only inflammatory, but contained misinformation. But the editor in charge of the opinion section, James Bennett, hit back, saying many readers will find Senator Cotton's arguments painful and even dangerous, but we believe that is one reason it requires public scrutiny and debate. Now, dozens of New York Times staffers made their feelings known on social media in defiance of a company policy which instructs them not to post partisan comments or take sides on issues. And media writers of other outlets didn't hold back either. Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan said that a common and useful norm in a newsroom is to say, hey boss, you might want to take a look at this one before it runs because it's got trouble written all over it. Now, the New York Times used to have a public editor to oversee its ethics in cases like this, but after it scrapped the post in 2017, the Columbia Journalism Review appointed one itself in 2019. Gabriel Snyder, formerly an editor at the New Republic and The Atlantic, and on Friday he said, The Times fails in its mission to seek the truth when it lends its platform to others to tell lies. Senator Collins' column, he said, was not only reprehensible but dishonest and not fit for print. And soon after, that's what New York Times chastened executives also decided. The story did not meet its standards, it said in a statement, and James Bennett himself told the staff he hadn't actually read it before he published it. Several New York Times staff used the same phrase on Twitter commenting on this. Running this piece puts black New York Times staff in danger. So this week I also asked the advocacy director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, Dr. Courtney Radge, if she thought that was true. Well, we don't get involved in the editorial content of the news organizations and journalists that we defend. The fact is, is regardless of what the editorial perspective is, they have the right to work freely and safely. That said, elevating public officials and and when public officials are out there calling for 
military action against peaceful protests and against journalists who are trying to cover newsworthy events when they are using this hyperbolic, you know, very militarized, dangerous language. Of course, it's creating conditions that could be much more perilous for journalists on the ground, not to mention the protesters and the people who are out there demanding racial justice. I personally don't think that publishing and giving it a platform to people who are calling for militarized action against people who are expressing their First Amendment rights, freedom of expression, freedom of association, and press freedom should be actioned against with military troops. This was clearly labelled as an opinion, this uh, piece by Senator Tom Cotton, but it, it is getting pretty weird, isn't it, when the reader's representative is saying, uh, it was not only dishonest, but actually reprehensible, uh, his words, and uh, shouldn't have been published. You know, there has been criticism at the New York Times or the Washington Post or other outlets who have provided an outlet, for example, uh, President Putin or uh, Erdogan from Turkey to have access to the pages of their newspapers, despite the fact that Turkey, for example, is the leading jailer of journalists or, or buying with China for that role. Um, when Russia has a massive crackdown on the press, and yet to provide them access to this very high-profile opinion section. You know, that is a question for the New York Times, for the Washington Post, for the op-ed editors. I think you could see it both ways, because we want to make sure that regardless of the, you know, political persuasion or um, the uh, professionalism of a media organization or of a journalist that they have the right to report on these issues without fear of being targeted, without fear of injury and without fear of reprisal. Dr. Courtney Radge, the Advocacy Director for the Washington-based Committee to Protect Journalists, talking to me about a controversial column in the New York Times this week urging military intervention to quell the unrest in the U.S. Right now, it's not a great time to be putting on a significant annual event. Lockdown level two rules mean it's feasible, but it seems a fair bet that the organisers of the Auckland Festival of Photography would have wished that they'd chosen a time a lot later in the year to hold it, or a lot earlier. It kicked off late last month and it runs through till next weekend in several galleries and venues around Auckland. And because of the current COVID restrictions, they've also set up a YouTube channel and a pop-up TV channel on Freeview, Channel 200, so that everything that's presented in public during the festival can also be on-air or online for those who can't make it in person. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern praised that ingenuity when she launched the festival recently and she said she was pleased that public funding from Creative New Zealand had helped to make it all possible. But when it comes to documentary photography, it's been the media and publishers who've paid the wages of the professionals over the years. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, the crisis for those companies is now threatening their future and the future for the photos that capture our history. The cover feature from the latest NZ Geographic is illustrated by a striking photo essay. In one shot, two women sit on picnic chairs a few metres apart drinking wine. A little further down, there's an image of a man playing a chip shot on a makeshift golf green mowed into a suburban berm. Another captures a woman sunbathing on her deck as a couple walks by below. The images were all taken by the experienced freelance photographer Brett Fibbs during New Zealand's Alert Level 4 lockdown. 
They show the eccentricities and limitations of lockdown life. Together they paint a picture of the humanity that existed beneath the scary headlines during the COVID-19 crisis. But it's lucky they were published at all. Our major newsrooms have been cutting photography staff numbers and budgets for years. It's not a new story. But the single biggest blow to the discipline came when Bauer Media shut its doors on April 1. In the space of one all-staff Zoom call, nearly every magazine that might have carried Fib's lockdown photo essay was closed. The Listener, North and South and Metro were all unceremoniously dumped, leaving NZ Geographic as the only current affairs magazine in the country. Its editor, Rebecca White, has spoken about how much of a blow that's been to journalism. But she's just as concerned that without those magazines, there'll be few places left carrying documentary photography, which focuses on the everyday parts of New Zealand life. With the closure of um, North and South and, and the listener and Metro, it means that New Zealand Geographic is the, um, as far as I know, the only outlet in New Zealand now commissioning documentary photography, which is where you have um, more than one picture to, to go with a story. And photography, to me, is such an important record of um, the way we live, and documentary photography in particular, because news photography is generally pictures of dramatic events or sort of famous things, whereas documentary photography is, it shows normal people in their normal lives, and it's, it's beautiful, and it lends a, um, a dignity to those lives, it, it preserves them, it shows, um, it shows normality, and I honestly get worried about what we're going to have to look back on in 50 years and 100 years when we want to see how we lived. And we want to see it in a, in a, in a beautiful, by, by professionals who dedicated themselves to portraying that. Brett Fibbs shares Rebecca White's concerns. He says there should have been many other professionals working on projects like the photo essay he did for her at NZ Geographic. He's worried that as outlets for photography disappear, we're losing our ability to tell our story to future generations. You know, photographers are not, you know, their, their bread and butter thing is to create work that is going to be published and you get paid for it. You know, you know that as a, as a photojournalist and as a freelance photographer. And if there's no avenue to do that, well, then you're not going to go out and do it, are you? So, you know, that's a concern, you know, like um, in years to come when, you know, your grandchildren and their grandchildren are trying to look back on how we lived and documented our lives, you know, it's not going to be there. Yeah, it does concern me because, uh, you know, coming from a, a newspaper background, you know, that's that's what we did day in, day out. We, we documented, you know, New Zealand's social history in a, in a way, you know, people kind of living their daily lives. And I think that's what's going to be going to be forgotten, you know, in, in years to come because there's fewer, fewer and far between of that happening, at, you know, in this day and age, you know, because we haven't got you know, the photographers that are, that are doing it and the publications that are publishing it. There's no kind of avenue to, to um, display your wear anymore apart from NZ Geographic. These concerns may seem a bit anachronistic in a smartphone age where nearly everyone has a high-quality camera in their pocket. The freelance photographer Adrian Malik says the ubiquity of camera technology hasn't necessarily improved the general quality of photography and professionals are still needed to tell stories properly. Once you know, iPhones and uh, camera phones became and digital cameras uh, sorted out all the uh, in-focus sharpness uh, exposure issues, 
it was as if everyone could take photos and who needed photographers. But in reality, the, the camera doesn't take the photographs, the photographer does. You know, going into a story, asking yourself the question, what is happening here? What matters here? What do I care about? What does, what will my audience care about? What does the people, what do the people in this photograph care about? What, what matters to them? Why am I actually doing this photography? And by answering those questions, by exploring and noticing and taking the time to walk in people's shoes for a, a while is what makes effective news photography. About 70% of Malik's work came from Bauer Publications. He's now having to place more focus on commercial work to get by and says that kind of directed, commercially driven photography could come to dominate the sector. Undirected photography is, is, is the point. There's so much photography of people now, but it's all curated by advertising agencies, publicists, marketing people, um, and whatever, whatever it is they want to tell us is, is there everywhere for us to see. But, you know, who are we as, as a people and, and what do we care about? Um, what matters to us? Uh, is where documentary photography is able to do that uh, when it wasn't done properly, when it's done well. Brett Phibbs, Rebecca White and Adrian Malik don't know the solution to the funding crisis facing photography or the wider media, but they all agree the government could offer more support. Brett Phibbs says that needs to change. I think, uh, you know, documentary photography, um, social documentation in New Zealand's history is really important. You know, you don't just have to be an artist as a photographer. You know, what is art, to be honest? You know, it's all subjective. And I think the art of living is, is, is it's worth a, it's worth a grant. It's worth to be supported, you know, and, and to be kept. You know, a documentary photographer deserves to probably get funded in a way from... Um, um, creative New Zealand, to be honest, and I find it astounding that they don't. You know, it's it's part of our fabric and, and the lives that we live. You know, doesn't that make? I think that makes it important, to be honest. For now, though, Brett Phibbs hopes publications will see the danger facing photography and place a higher priority on it in their budgets. Though he knows media companies are under pressure, he argues there are few things more important to the historical record than a good picture. You know, I've always, I've always kind of believe that you you know when a publication you kind of enter the publication and the story via the photograph you know you're taken in by a stunning photograph a, a well-learned shot you know composition lighting and you know it's not just pushing the button like a, an iphone you know and put a filter through it you have to it's a well-learned shot and that's where i think the, the art of photojournalism lies you know it's um you're you kind of news gatherers and photojournalists you know journalists in, in your own right you know and I think um, we're kind of missing that. We're missing the point. Former New Zealand Herald photographer Brett Phibbs talking to Hayden Donnell. Now, Brett's images of Auckland under lockdown can be seen in the current edition of New Zealand Geographic, published the day after New Zealand emerged from lockdown level four. This week, Creative New Zealand also told us that documentary photographers are eligible to apply for Creative New Zealand support, and it said it has supported specific documentary photography projects in the past. But to be eligible, proposed documentary photography projects or activities, they say, must directly benefit New Zealand arts, artists or practitioners. Now you can hear more from other New Zealand documentary photographers about the future of their craft in the digital version of Hayden's story. It's on the RNZ website or the MediaWatch section of the RNZ app. Just look for the title, The End of History.
The work of more than 150 other New Zealand photographers can be seen now at the Auckland Festival of Photography, which runs through till June the 15th at various venues around Auckland City and is also online and on Freeview TV each day. Hour-long episodes screen at 8pm every day on Channel 200 from Monday to Saturday and they're repeated at 3pm the following day. And there's more details of that and even an app to download at the website photographyfestival.org.nz. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but Hayden Donnell will be back with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, during Lately with Karen Hay. And then we're back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.